good to see you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to shed his blood, to give his body for the remission of, of our sins. gift has been freely given, not bought. That we would place our faith and our trust in his work would be saved. Thank you for your spirit who indwells each of us as each of us as believers. We ask that your spirit would be known and present this morning, teaching us through your word. For your glory. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Like I said, Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Again, Holy Spirit, we invite your presence into our hearts. We ask that our, our ears would be open and our eyes would be open to see and to hear what you would teach us. It's in Jesus' name. So as is our pattern, as we go through a book of the Bible, we need to make sure that we keep the context, uh, especially with Paul, Paul, the author of the book of Philippians. Uh, Paul is a train of thought preacher. He's a train of thought uh, writer, maybe it's a better put. Uh, meaning that as he as he's got his point, but he he builds his point as he goes along. Where, where maybe James is a little bit different. He kind of goes on these rabbit trails and while he does have a main point, and each of the rabbit trails kind of plays their part at the ends of each of those rabbit trails, is kind of on, they're kind of by themselves. 
Paul almost never goes on a rabbit trail. He's just focused on making his point. He's laying track, if you will, as he goes forward. And so to keep the context, let's let's think about where we're at. Verses 12 to 26, Paul, Paul expressed to us or shows to us his faith in the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. He, his, his belief and, and action, uh, believing that God is in control of every situation, no matter what's happening, God is in control and working all things for good, even in the midst of of suffering. Suffering for Paul was his imprisonment, his beatings, his all sorts of stuff. Paul has suffered greatly at this point in his life. And he knows that through all of these, God has continued to work and continued to move the gospel forward uh, despite all of Satan's efforts to stop him. So Paul has a faith in the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. And then in verses 26 to the end of, of chapter 1, verse 30, or 27 to the end, uh, 27 to 30, excuse me, uh, Paul kind of calls us now to have faith in the, the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. But he does so by laying a new, uh, a new set of tracks. He, he lays it out in front. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So, so Paul, in, in a lot of ways, he's trying to show us what it looks like to place our faith in the sovereignty of God. Paul talks in, in this section about what we would, in, in theological terms, call sanctification. Now, when we talk about salvation coming from Scripture, we can mean, we can mean kind of three different things. We can mean justification, we can mean sanctification, we can mean glorification. Justification, we, when we were going through Romans, we saw in Romans chapters 1 through 8, Paul was talking about justification. Justification, and, and we're, we're breaking some, some doctrine rules by, by separating these, these three things out distinctly, but bear with me. Justification is the, is the moment of salvation. Right? It's, the, it's the point in which we don't have faith in the work of Jesus, and now we do have faith in the work of Jesus, and it's at that point that we are justified in God's sight. Before we place ourselves in the work of Christ on the cross, we are condemned because of our sin. And, and Christ comes down, he, he suffers, he dies, he bears the penalty that we should rightfully be paying. And he gives this freedom to us And what we do in faith is we, we believe and we trust and we act upon that truth. And it's at that point that we are justified in God's eyes and we are no longer condemned. And it is nothing of us. It's nothing of us. It is entirely his work. It's entirely his gift. It has absolutely nothing to do with our personal righteousness. It's entirely Christ's personal righteousness. And so then we, we say things like, when were you saved? And that's kind of what we mean. When were you justified? At what point in your life did you go from not believing to believing? But that's not all of salvation. Salvation is more than just the point. From justification, we, we then have the, the, on, the ongoing work of sanctification or, or the ongoing work of salvation, meaning the, that our lives are being transformed by the Spirit that dwells in us to look more and more like Jesus. 
So we are, we are set right in God's eyes at, at a certain point. And then from that point until our death or the return of Jesus, when we go into heaven, we call that glorification because we're entering into the glory of God. But in between those two points, we are, we are being changed. We are being saved. We are being transformed. This is what Paul, again, is talking about in Romans from 12 to 16. He's talking about this, that promise. He's talking about the same thing in Philippians. He's talking to a bunch of people at the church in Philippi who are all justified and are now continuing through the process of being changed into Christ's likeness. And so he says, live a life. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, what we talked about last week. And the interesting thing about, about the process of, of living out salvation, when we talk about justification, we talk about what Christ has done for us. And part of that belief, part of that, that trust, that faith, right? Faith is, is knowing something and then that knowledge creating action in my life. It's not just not knowing Jesus died for me. It's not just knowing 2 plus 2 equals 4. But whenever the, the kind of test comes, we answer 4 whenever we give the question. We know that we are justified by the work of Christ. And that also means that we are, we are released, we are freed from the bondage that sin has upon our lives. And so if we believe that, it's going to manifest itself in action, that being sanctification. But that process happens through our own life, through the steps that we take. We can be told and shown and, and given examples of, of what it means and what it looks like to, to follow after Christ. But in the end, as we see that and believe that, we then take steps. Now, we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. We do that through the change that has been wrought in our lives from the work of Christ on the cross. But it is still our steps. So Paul plainly states it. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be Jesus, he says. And what he does last week is he kind of glosses over what he's calling us to do and the result of that. And he says, he says, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he says, because I want to see you unified. I want to see you being one together. And he doesn't say how that, how that connects, because he says it in chapter 2. The other thing that he says before we jump past last week's passage, is he, he tells us not to be frightened. Not to be frightened by opposition. Because when, when we love the Lord and we follow in Christ's footsteps and we live out our life uh, we live out our life being sanctified what Jesus promises us is that is that the world is going to hate us and the world is going to try to stop us and when that happens this is not a sign that the world is winning but rather that God is at work and so he says don't be frightened of the persecution or the suffering that you might go through and I think it's important that we keep that in the back of our minds as we go into today's passage. He says, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Don't be afraid of suffering. And then he says this. Then he teaches us what happens between living a life worthy of the gospel and unity. You ready for it? It's very complex. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So here's what he says. He says, yes, there's going to be suffering. 
But he also teaches us in other places, and the rest of the Bible teaches us, that there's good to following after Christ. There's, there's love that we experience as a body of believers from the rest of the body of believers that we do not experience in any other situation in life. There is affection and encouragement and participation in the spirit and, and sympathy and compassion and love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. We are affected by these things and we live a life that brings something different. And so Paul says, if this is true, in spite of the fact that there might be, that there might be suffering, it, if this is true, I want you to do something for me. He says, complete my joy. Complete my joy. Have the same love. Be in full accord with one another in one mind. Right? So last week he said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this is going to lead to unity. Because that's what he, that's what he expects to see. Now he says, be unified. He hasn't quite answered his question yet. He's still leaving that, how do we do that out, right? He tells us in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others, have this mind amongst yourselves. We'll pause there halfway through that verse. There. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. Right? You get in the Garden of Eden. God says you can have you can have everything. Everything in creation is placed under man under Adam and Eve's authority and dominion. Except for one tree, God says. That one thing is mine. One thing is mine. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which is theological in its, in its, in its writing. It's not just a tree, but it represents God's authority over what is right and wrong. And God says, you can't eat from that. And if you do, you'll surely die. And, and, and Eve, she's standing there. Adam's nearby. Eve's standing there looking at the tree. And she's kind of... She's looking at it, and she's wondering what's what's all about. And, and, and serpent, who we find out later in Scripture is Satan, he comes and he says, did, did God really say you can't eat that? You can't have any of the trees? And he said, no, just this, this one tree. Well, what did he say was going to happen? He said, I'll, I'll, well, we'll die. We'll die if we eat it. He said, you won't, you won't die. It's the first lie. You, you won't die. Rather, you'll become like God. Anybody ever feel that in our lives? Anybody ever feel like that's the temptation that's driving us to almost every single sin? That we want to be God? This is what we call selfishness. Is that we place, we place ourselves as the most important being in all of the, all of the universe. It stands in direct, comp, direct competition with how God created the universe. We are never to be the center of the universe. God is always the center of the universe. And what we do when we sin is we take that back to ourselves. In, in, in every single sin at some level is selfishness. And so here's what Paul says. He says, don't be selfish. That's a big one, right? That's a massive and tall order. He says, do, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Stop thinking of yourself first, he says. This is really hard to do. 
But this is the essence of what it means to be in relationship. Not just in the church, but in relationship in general. Business partners, marriages, friendships. The best marriages that you will ever see are not, are not based on, on mutual selfishness, but mutual humility and love toward the other. Relationships that thrive, and, and, and as you look from the outside in, and you go, man, I want that kind of a relationship. Those relationships are founded upon the idea that my role in this, in this relationship is that I'm going to always serve my partner first. Now, let's think about it from a, selfish, from a selfish perspective in a room full of, say, 100 people. If all of us were selfish and only thought of our own needs first, we fail. We fall short. We, it's not a good thing. Do you, do you, understand, do you, do you know that we are created to, to live in community with each other? It's one of the reasons why God shows us himself in three persons. But God is Trinity. And we were created in his image to be in relationship with each other. And when we are not in relationship with each other, we crumble. Right? I mean, simple biology teaches us that we have to have at least a mate. Right? We need other people in order to survive. And so if in selfishness, I only think of myself, it's inevitable that we're going to collapse. But if we start to think of others as much as or more than we think of ourselves. Look at what happens. Now me, my, my, the one person out of 100, he, I have a need. Now there's 99 other people who are there to support me. Because the other reality is that really most of the time, most of us are not in need all of the time. In a room full of 100 people, maybe there's 10 people who have deep needs that need to be met by, by the rest of the body. And selfishness is just me to support myself. In community that operates properly, it's many people who are there to help. Think of others more significant to yourself. And when Paul says this, he doesn't, he doesn't mean think of yourself as worthless. That's not what he's saying. Because right? that's, that's, that's also a problem, to think of yourself as, I, I don't have any value. I, I, that, that diminishes that God created you, Right? No, rather, he says, think of other people as much as you think of yourself. Jesus uses the same concept when the Pharisee comes to him and he says, he says, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus is like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is exactly what is the greatest commandment. Love God with everything that we are first. And then he says, the second is like it. And I love that the Pharisee says, what's the one good, great commandment? And Jesus goes, I'll give you two. That's it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't describe to us what it should look like to love ourselves because it's built into us. I don't like pain. I don't want somebody to come in here and just haul off and slug me. I don't want that. I don't want to experience hurt and suffering. And so Jesus says, take those realities of your own existence and, and think of others. Because they're going through the same things. And Paul here, I think he almost one-ups it. More significant than yourselves. Not just as equal to us, but more significant. Yes, it is a tall order. There's no getting around that. And nor should we deny that. It's difficult, and we are constantly failing at it. But this is what, 
This is what it looks like to love one another. Jesus tells us in John 13. John 13 chapter, or John 13 is the chapter. John 13 verse 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved if you have love for one another. See, here's what Jesus says. He says, he says, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to love each other. And by doing this, evangelism happens. Isn't that interesting? I think we get evangelism backwards. Right? We go, okay, let's, let's, let's go out and let's tell people about Jesus. And that's the first thing that we have. Just go do it. Let's go do it. But I think what the Bible teaches us is, no, the first thing that we should do is love each other. It's kind of like saying, get your own house in order before you try to deal with somebody else's. It's the same thing that Jesus is saying whenever he says, get the plank out of your own eye, get the the, the massive amount of sin out of your own life before you go and address somebody's small speck in their eye. He's not saying don't address the small speck. He's saying get your own house in order before you, because you can't start to work on somebody else's life until you get it right in your own. others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. But each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think this is just about as simply put as it can be. As I look around the room, I recognize that we all come from different places. We all come from different backgrounds. We have different desires and different wants and different sufferings and different joys. And so often, so often, the only thing I ever think about is me. But then Paul does something just astounding. Man, Paul's awesome. He says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he, he quotes this, what most most scholars or people who study the Bible think is a, a hymn, an early song of the church. Right? He says, who, who, Jesus, who, is, though he was in the form of God, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So what is is Paul doing here? Paul's taking this hymn that is that is full of powerful truth. Christ, Christ, who is God, came into this world not to dominate it. Right? We get that? He, he, he was God. He is in the form of God, which means that he is God. And he doesn't count it. He doesn't count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. Because, because all of us, we recognize, 
imagine for, for just a minute. Imagine just, just a minute you have complete, complete power. It's total power. Imagine how that's going to change the way you interact with the people who are around you. You don't even have to imagine it. Just look at all the examples of all the people in human history who have gained power and what they did with it. Oftentimes, it's the most horrendous things that we've ever seen humans do. And God has complete power. Jesus has, has total and complete power and authority. It was through him that the world was even created. And, and he, he comes down into this earth, which is, which is incredible enough to, to, to come into your own creation, to become part of your own creation. And, and he could have come in and not a single person would have followed him if he would have, instead of, instead of going from the hill, coming down, riding on a, on a donkey, instead of going from there to, to the cross, if Jesus went from there to the throne, and sat in the throne and took upon himself authority. There's not a single person in all of human history who could have followed him because it's, it's rightfully his. And he chooses not to grasp that and pull it into himself selfishly. But instead he, he humbles himself. He places himself not, not equal with man, which is absurd enough, but as a servant of man. He gives himself as a servant of man, and then he gives all of himself to man. Not just in his life and ministry, where time and time again in the, in the Gospels we read how Jesus, he, he was about to go and rest. And then there were a bunch of us wandering around beside him, and he has compassion on us. And instead of resting, which he, he needed, he gave more of himself to us. He humbled himself, not just in his ministry to mankind, but, but he goes to the cross. He allows his own creation to nail him to the cross, to suffer and to die, not just to, as a show of his own strength, but because of his desperate, his desperate love for each and every one of us. It's, it's staggering to think about. This, this hymn, it teaches us that because of this, God, God has highly exalted him, has placed him above everything. His name is above all names. And when he returns, every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And I, I, I mean, all, I think all God's people said amen, right? But here's what Paul does with this. Paul's like, he says, this is, what it, this is what it looks like. Jesus tells us to love one another. And to love one another looks like thinking of others more significant than ourselves. Just exactly like Jesus did for us. Here's a, a dirty little secret that I'm going to share with you. Then I don't think it's actually a secret. Each and every person in this room, at some level, as you look around the people, look around at the people who are around you. There are some people who you think of is better than you, and there are some people you think of as worse than you. It's part of our fallen nature. But what we do with that so often is we look at those people who we think, oh, they're, 
better than me or they're like me. We're willing to help them. We serve them. But those other people, this person who's got money, who's got status, who if I help them is going to post my name on Facebook, I'll help them. But this person who just you know, can't keep a job, doesn't look as nice, doesn't have a nice job. Again, it's part of our nature. It's part of our nature because we are so self-involved. But to look at us in comparison to Christ, I think really it probably should crush us the way we think about others. Because we are so far below Christ that it should stagger our minds to think about his serving us on the cross. And so therefore, as we look around the world, as we are transformed by the work of sanctification in our lives, wrought by the Holy Spirit who dwells in each of us, as we know this to be true, we, we should take action. Now that action means that I have to actually get to know each other. We have to actually get to know each other. We have to actually be willing to serve. Sometimes we have to be willing to let others serve us because we're struggling. But here's what that does. There's two things that happen, I think. Number one, the world then knows that we are Christ's disciples. And to know one's disciple means to know the one who is the leader. So we show Christ by loving each other. The world becomes aware of what Jesus is doing, which can't we all agree it desperately needs? But it also does something that I think is more important for us. It brings glory to God. It brings glory to his work. To his, to his blood-bought work in this world. I share all the time. I say this. I say this a lot. That one of the my, one of my most favorite things to experience as a pastor is to watch a person who was dead come to life in Jesus. And there's very little that I can see in my own life that I witness that that I glorify God more for. To see somebody who doesn't have any joy, maybe they have happiness, but they don't have joy. They don't have peace anything. And then they then they are are justified by the work of Christ and, and it just explodes out of them. And, it, and you look at their before and after picture and you go, these people aren't even the same. God is glorified when we are changed. He is magnified because of his son Jesus. And so we love each other not just to create a better environment, while that would be good, we love each other because we glorify God in that. And I think of that, again, all God's people say amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the work of your son, Jesus. 
because we are sinners condemned, completely desperate, that you saved us through the work of your son Jesus. We thank you. We are now free. We are free from sin and death. And while we are still bound up in this in this world of flesh and we still fall short of your glory, we know that you are continuing to save us, continuing to transform us by renewing our minds, by illuminating for us places in our lives that are sin, and by drawing us closer to one another so that we can we can be more than just a family but we can be one as you and the son are one we can be drawn together in our hurts in our triumphs we can glorify you in our love for each other and that this infectious love will emanate from us and will reach others who do not know your Son as Savior. We thank you and we praise you for your Spirit who empowers each and every one of us towards this. We praise your name. We honor you. We pray this again.